let's get started. <laughs> so yesterday, what we left off with is the that there's a differentiation drawn between a ner, a regular lamp, and a menorah, like some sort of a, a larger scale lamp, like a menorah, right? That there's a differentiation that even if Shimon would say that it's mukta, at least according to Rish Lakish, if it is the type of lamp that needs to be carried with two hands, Rib um, Shimon would say it's mukta. And according to Rabbi Yechanan, um, even if it's even if it's the type of lamp that's carried with one hand, it is still muktzah. So now what the Gemara is going to get into, why is there a distinction drawn between a regular lamp and a menorah? That if I have menorah, either according to Rishlakish, like I said, if it's two hand, two, heavy enough menorah for two hands, it's muktzah. And according to Rishlakish, any type of menorah is muktzah. Why is there differentiation drawn? So earlier what we've been saying is, that Rav Shimon does not have an issue, just to go over again, the position of Rav Shimon, because it's just going to keep on going again and again. So just to reiterate what we know so far. Rav Shimon does not hold the Mukta Machmas Mias. He does not hold that something that has become gross is then become set aside from use on Shabbos. He does hold, <coughs> excuse me, of Hotzilu Mitzvasa, something which is set aside for mitzvah purposes, that is now no longer usable on Shabbos. Something which is Hukta, which is mukta meikare, um, uh, basically eitzim and avanim, right? Is the is the classic category, classic example. It's something which has no use on Shabbos at all. So nobody has ever thought to themselves, "I'm intending to use that rock or that stick on Shabbos." The Rav Shimon also agrees that that's mukta. Now, the third case that we discussed yesterday is that when someone determines that they actually push it away from being used on Shabbos, and we said it doesn't just have to be literally pushing it away and deciding, taking an action to concretize that you have no intention of using it on Shabbos. We said there are other similar examples too. We said the example of having an animal that you have no intention of possibly shachting on Yom can also become mukta. And Rashi explained, why, how, does that, how does it fit into the category of that was actually pushed away? So Rashi said that because it's so unlikely to actually take it from its place where it is right now, that it has the equivalent status as actually pushing it away with your hands, right? Because remember, the bar that we're trying to reach is a bar of saying that an item has not been set aside for use on Shabbos. What bar is that? It's a very high bar, according to Herb Shimon, to define something as, being set, as not being set aside for use on Shabbos, right? Or as being the opposite, being set aside to not be used on Shabbos. But it could be reached depending on certain criteria. So now... So the Gemara says, when it comes to a, um, a candle, a regular lamp, it's not set aside from use on Shabbos, right? And the fact that you, you had it used, you're using it as a lamp earlier on Shabbos, that's not going to make a muktzah to be used on Shabbos. However, a menorah will be. So what's the distinction? A time of my three lines from the bottom on 45b. Rabba Urav Yosef, Amri Tavayu, Hoyova Odom Kevele Makhna. Rabba Urav Yosef say, you know why a menorah is different? Because a menorah is set aside to say, stay in a specific location. Menorahs are not typically moved. So what he wants, Rabbi Nerv Yosef wants to suggest is that the difference between a nair and a menorah is that a nair, a lamp, is a very small item and it's picked up and it's moved around the house. So the fact that you lit it and you made it, you made it, um, when it was lit, it was forbidden to be moved by Rav Shimon. And the fact that after that, so yeah, who cares? It was forbidden to be moved earlier. But since typically it is moved around, it, you never thought to yourself, I'm leaving this here for the duration. Whereas a menorah is a nice heavy item, people think of it, I'm leaving it here for the duration. Abaya says there is a case of Akilas Chasanim. So Akilas Chasanim is the, the bed that Chasanim would use. Now, the, the bed that these Chasanim, that, that grooms would use, had a, a structure where it doesn't have a real, it doesn't have a real, um, an ohel issue, right? An ohel, you're not allowed to make an ohel on Shabbos, a tent on Shabbos. Now, how do you define a tent on Shabbos? The way we define a tent on Shabbos is, if it has a flat surface that is one tefach wide, that's considered to be a tent, right? So as long as it doesn't have a flat surface that's one tefach wide, it's not an issue. So if you're making a tent that is a, a complete and total triangle, does not get to a, um, does not get to a, at any point to be an actual um, one tefach wide flat, 
then it's not an issue. So he says, the kilos chasanim, adam a person takes this bed and he intends for the bed to remain as is, right? He says, you're permitted to put it up and permitted to put it down on Shabbos. So what do we see? We see that even though you intended to have it in a specific place, right? It's still the fact that you set it aside in a specific place does not, does not uh, stop you from actually moving it, taking it apart and putting it back together on Shabbos. So just because you put it in a specific place does not make something muksa. So why is it true that by a menorah it should become muksa according to Shimon? El Amr Abayas, Abayas says it's a different reality. The reason why Menorah is forbidden to move on Shabbos is because the Shel Chulius, we're talking about a Menorah that's made out of different sections, right? Now, what's the concern? The concern is like this. The concern is that if it's made out of sections, when you're moving it, you might end up taking it apart, or it might end up, according to Rashi, maybe it will fall. And when it falls, then it's going to break. And when it breaks, you're going to put it back together. The sections are now going to give you section back into each other. And when that happens, you're going to be doing makabapathis. You're going to be finishing putting together a cleat, putting together a vessel, which is forbidden to do on Shabbos. So the reason why Menorah can't be moved is there's a concern that it will fall. We're talking about a specific Menorah, Menorah that's made out of sections. And if it falls, it will break. And if it breaks, you're going to have to put it together. And that will be a problem. And Nimura asks, if that's so, that we're talking about a Menorah that has made out of sections, then why is Rish Lakish arguing on Rabbi Yechanan? Why is Rish Lakish permitting you to move a smaller size Menorah, the one that can be lifted with one hand? If it's made out of sections, there should be the same concern, that it might fall on the ground and break and you'll put it back together. What difference does it make if it's a type of Menorah that can be lifted with one hand as opposed to two hands? My time is Lakish, the Shari. Why is Rish Lakish permit you to move a one-handable a one one or one-hand-liftable Menorah? My cholias, the says, it didn't mean literally section. What we meant is ke'en cholias, to ispa chitti. It actually doesn't have sections in it, but it has some sort of situation in which it has the appearance of a section. It has these like um, like edges that makes it look like they're you know put together. And since it makes it look like it's put together, what will happen is people will think that if you can carry the this thing, they'll actually think that it's a regular um, uh, a regular section of Monero, and then they will carry a section of Monero, which might be a problem because it might break, and they'll put it back together. So Hilkach, therefore, so what, therefore, why do we draw a distinction between a large Monero and a small Monero according to Rishakish? Chulias, being a doila, being katana, asura so if it's an actually section of Monero, whether it's a large Monero or a small Monero, it's going to be forbidden to actually carry it. Because both of them are going to be a concern that they might fall and break and you'll, re-put, and you'll reassemble it. So basically like this. Everybody agrees, both Rish Lakish and Rabbi Yechonin agree that if you have a Monero that actually is made out of sections, it is, it is not permitted to be carried and to be transported on Shabbos. Why? Because it might fall. And if it falls, it will break. The question is, let's say you have a manure that's not actually made out of sections, but has a appearance as if it was made out of section, right? So if it's a large manure, everybody agrees that we're going to make a zero. We're going to make an enactment, a decree. You're not permitted to carry a large manure that has the appearances of it's made out of sections around on Shabbos. Because if you carry this manure, you might have to carry a large manure that actually is made out of sections. The question is, do we extend this decree to even a smaller manure that has the appearances of it's made out of sections? Or Bechanan says, yes, it's across the board. And... And, um, and Rav Shem Malakar says that we do not have a concern for that case. Rashi explains what's the, what's the difference of a small Monera and a large Monera that has the appearance as if it has um, sections. Rashi says, a small Monera, really everybody recognizes that small Moneras are not normally made out of sections. Because a large Monera makes sense that you have to have larger sections that you put together. A small Monera can be just one uh, made out of one block of, 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 uh, of metal or whatever it's made out of, right? So why do we even make any Xera at all by a small Monera ever? The reason is we make a zera, an enactment by a small manera, up to 
against the case of the large Monero. That if people see you carrying a small Monero, they might think you carry a large Monero. Rabbi Yechanan says, okay, that's only true if the small Monero is actually made out of sections, which is atypical in the first place. But Rabbi Yechanan will say, I'm, I'm going to go so far as to say that even if the Monero is not made out of sections, but it has the appearance of made out of sections, and it's small, which is atypical to be made out of sections, Rabbi Yechanan would still say, we're going to have Xera Atu, we're going to have Xera about a case where it actually is made out of sections. Shemalak is going to say that far, we're not going to go. So we have, it's a, a very, it's a, um, it's a technical conversation now that, that Rav Shimon extends a, a mukta issue for this type of Monero, but it's not dependent on any other mukta question. It's very specific to this type of case that there's a concern that if you carry it, it will come to break. Okay. Now the Gemara says like this. At this point, what we seem to be saying is that Rabbi Yechanan holds like Rav Shimon. Does Rabbi Yechanan hold like Rabbi Shimon? We, we have Rabbi Yechanan make a statement elsewhere, a famous statement from Rabbi Yechanan, a halachic principle. Halacha kistad mishnah. Anytime you have a mishnah that is an anonymous uh, author, right, and there's no there's no no attribution of who wrote that mishnah, then the halacha follows that mishnah. But it's not. And we learned in an anonymous mishnah. We actually already learned this mishnah a couple of days ago. We're talking about the case of a wagon that has a wheel that a wheel that is detachable. And we said that if the wheel is detachable. It is not considered to be an attachment to the wagon, and if one thing becomes tame, impure, the other thing does not. Also, we said, it's not going to be measured together with the actual wagon when we're trying to figure out if it reached the minimum volume that it will not become ritually impure because it's a, a very large portable item. Very large portable items cannot become ritually impure. When you're trying to figure out if it reached the requisite volume, you do not include the detachable wheel in that measure. And you do not include it in the OLMs. You do not include this wagon wheel when you're trying to figure out if it has the the uh, the measure to be able to be an OLMs, to be a a, um, a separation between the dead body and to to not allow the tuma, the impurity, to leave the area. So if it's going to be large enough that it won't it won't actually become ritually impure itself by itself without the wheel, then we're gonna say that this wheel, that the, that the wagon is gonna protect from the tumma leaving that area. But if it's not gonna be large enough, unless you include the wheel and the wheel is detachable, it's not going to be, it won't, uh, it won't protect anything. Now, let's get to the point of the matter. The Mishnah told us that you're not permitted to wheel the, the wagon wheel at a time when there actually is money on the wagon wheel. The implication of that mission is that if it does not have money on the wagon wheel, you're permitted to move it, even though and even though the money was on the wagon wheel time. So the Gemara is asking like this. The the earlier we had finished off previously on Daf Memhayamabes that Rabbi Yechanan holds at, at least like Rabbi Huda, right? Rabbi Yechanan holds like Rabbi Huda's opinion about mukta, that something which is something which had mukta on it, on it, you know, during the entire twilight zone, it becomes forbidden to be moved the rest of Shabbos. And this Mishnah says that you're allowed to move the wheel on Shabbos as long as there's no longer money on it. Implication is that even if there was money on it, the entire Bein Shmashas would still be permitted to move it. And if Rabbi Yechanan always says that halacha is like a Stam Mishnah, that means Rabbi Yechanan holds that this, this Mishnah is the halacha. How can you say both these halachas? How can you say both that the halacha is like Rabbi Huda in general, but yet also at the same time, this Mishnah is still true. And as long as the money is not on it right now, you're permitted to move the wheel. That shouldn't be true according to Rabbi Huda. 
is called Interesting Lushan, that is interesting language that is used here to answer the question. Zera says, take this Mishnah and explain the Mishnah what it says that there was, all the Mishnah says is there's no money on it. It doesn't say when there is no money on it. So explain the Mishnah's term like this. There is no money on the wheel, the entire Beinashmashas, the entire Twilight Zone. And since there's no money on the wheel, the entire Beinashmashas, then you will be good. Why? Because then you're not going to be breaking the words of Rabbi Yechanan. We asked a very strong contradiction in the words of Rabbi Yechanan. Well, now we just took care of that contradiction. Because if we say that the Mishnah, that Stam Mishnah implied that according to Rabbi Yechanan, you have an issue of, um, that according to Rabbi Yechanan, you have an issue, according to, if, if the Stam Mishnah has to be at the opinion of Rabbi Yechanan, and the Stam Mishnah is talking about a case that the wheel is permitted to be moved, we're going to have to understand that the wheel had no money on it the entire Bainish Mashas, or else, according to Rabbi Yechanan, indeed it would be forbidden to move the wheel. And that's what the Mishnah said, that there's no money on it. It didn't mean there's no money on it right now. It meant there's no money on it the entire Bainish Mashas, the entire Twilight Zone. So the Gemara says a very ambiguous statement. Rabbi Shubham Levi says, at one time, Rebbe went to the Ospera and he paskin, he, he gave a ruling that in the Menorah, the Halacha is like Rabbi Shimon, Bener. So it's ambiguous. What does that mean to say? Does that mean to say that he held that by Menorah, it is like Rabbi Shimon's Halacha by Ner and that it's permitted? Or did he something else? What exactly does he mean? So the Gemara says, Yibailu. Asks a question. Did he actually say that a menorah is permitted to move on Shabbos like the Rib Shimon permits to move a regular lamp? Or did he, Paskin, did he in past the halacha is that a menorah is forbidden to move on Shabbos? And then should be split up and say, by menorah, he said it's forbidden. But by a, by a, a ner, by a, a regular lamp, he held like a Shimon that it indeed is permitted. Take you. It's unclear what Rebbe's halacha was, right? It'll be important to us to know what, which way Rebbe went, because if we know which way Rebbe went, then that would help determine is, if the halacha is like of Shimon or like Rebbe Huda. But it is a take you. It's a question that we have to wait for Leo and Nabi to come to explain the answer to us. Ramakia went to the base mattress of Rebbe Simlai and he moved a lamp, he moved a, I'm sorry, a candle. The Ikbid Rebbe Simlai. Rebbe Simlai said, What are you doing? Same thing. Again, he moved a candle after it was already out, and both these cases they said you shouldn't do it. And Rebavo came to the place of Rebishub and Levi, having a tatlo shraga. When he came to the place of Rebishub and Levi, he would move the candle after it went out. When he came to the place of Rebishub, he did not carry the candle once it had gone out. One of Shachlik Mar asks, if he holds like Rebbe Yehuda, that you're forbidden to move the lamp after it went out, then then he should go like Rebbe Yehuda, whether, whether he's in the, the area of Rebbe Yehuda or whether he's in the area of Shuban Levi, he should hold. You're not allowed to move the lamp if, after the lamp went out, because if you hold like Rebbe Yehuda, that is the halacha. And if he holds like Rebbe Shimon, then Rebbe Shimon, then Rebbe Shimon, but if he holds like Rebbe Shimon, then he should hold that the halacha is always like Rebbe Shimon. Right, so why is he switching back and forth depending on which his locale? Is he depending? Is he deciding if Allah is like Rav Shimon that you are permitted to move the lamp after it went out, or like Rabbi Huda that you're not permitted to move the lamp after it went out? You have to say that indeed he actually follows the Allah of Rav Shimon that you are permitted to move it once it went out. So there's a concept that we find all over Shas that if you're in the town where there is a Morda Asr, where there is a clear cut halachic decisor of the town, and that person had had paskin the specific halacha whether it is to be more lenient 
or more stringent, and you normally follow a different halachic opinion, when you're in that town, you should follow his opinion. Otherwise, it is disrespectful. So in general, he held like Shimon. But when he went to the town of Rabbi Yechon, since Rabbi Yechon was the clear leader of that town in halacha, he felt that it would be appropriate to refrain from moving the lamp once it had gone out. Okay. Omer of Yehuda, Shraga de Mishcha, Shari Tula. So Rabbi Yehuda says, if you have a, this is Rabbi Yehuda, not Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda is the Tana who says that you're not permitted to move things and very stringent about Mutzah. Rabbi Yehuda Damora says that if you have a, a lamp made out of oil, then Shari Tula, then you're permitted to move it after it goes out. Then Nafta Tula. If you have a lamp made out of Nafta, which we learned in the previous parak, Nafta was a very smelly, uh, a foul-smelling um, substance, and therefore it has no use at all on Shabbos, right? So basically, Rabbi Yehuda's statement is that even Rav Shimon who says that you're permitted to move the candle after the lamp after it's gone out, that's only true when it's a lamp that has had oil in it before. Since it had oil in it before, it has a potential use on Shabbos. You could use it to move other substances, but a lamp that actually had nafta in it before, nobody would ever use it to, to transport other substances, and therefore it does become mukta even according to Rav Shimon, according to Rav Yehuda's opinion of Rav Shimon. They argue and they say that even a lamp made out of nafta is also permitted to move it. Why? Ravavia went to Bay Rava. He went to the house of Rava. He had gotten his uh, shoes dirty with, uh, with mud. He put them on the bed in front of Rava. Rava. Rava got very angry. He wanted to uh, chaper him, the word is in, in Yiddish, to, to, you know, to harass him a little bit, right? Because he was angry at his behavior. He says, Rabbi Yosef said that you are permitted to move it to move it, um, even a candle, even a lamp that's made out of uh, nafta, you're still permitted to move it afterwards. So he's asking, what's the reason? So Amalei says to him, He says, the reason why they hold that you're permitted to move it after it, even though it, it no longer has the typical usage that one would use a lamp for, which is to transport other substances if it's empty of its original material. But you don't do that when it was used for nafta because that's so gross. He says, I'll tell you what you would use it for. You would use it for is you could take the lamp and you could actually turn it over on top of a object to protect a fragile object. So that is the reason why they say that even a lamp that was previously used on Shabbos for nafta is still permitted to be used for, it's still permitted to be moved. It's not muktzah. Why? Because it has this other use, not to transport, but to protect. So Rava goes further and Rava says, one second, if that's true, then you should say any pebble that's in your, <coughs> in your courtyard, it shouldn't be mukta, right? Why, according to Rav Shimon, is the pebble in the courtyard mukta? Why is it considered something that you have no intention of using? We should say, well, it shouldn't be mukta, it shouldn't be set aside from using. Maybe you'll decide that you want to use that pebble to cover, that rock to cover something, and it'll protect an item. So if the reason why it's something doesn't become mukta, even as long as it possibly can be used to cover another item, it doesn't become mukta, then even shouldn't become mukta. That's not true. That can't be the reason for Rabbi Nerv Yosef why they say that a lamp that has been used for nafta is, no, is not mukta after it went out. Amalei says back to him, that's a very big difference. When you have a lamp, a lamp by definition is a vessel. Right? It happens to be it's a vessel that is set aside for, dedicated for a specific type of, of purpose. And that, that purpose is not a purpose that can be used on Shabbos, but at least it is a vessel. 
a rock is not a vessel at all. So you never had anything in mind that you were intending to use it. So a rock that you never had any intention of using it, and you'll tell me, well, you had the possibility you could have used it to cover something else. Well, you never thought to yourself, I want to be able to use this rock for any purpose at all. Therefore, the fact that you could use it for something is not going to be enough, according to Rabbi Shimon, to permit using it on Shabbos. But a lamp that actually has a definition of vessel about it, and you have the possibility of using it for a secondary purpose, maybe far-fetched, but still a possibility, that does not become muktzah. So, honey, like a there's clear lab, but these rocks do not have the the uh, a definition of clear a vessel about it. Okay, turning the page now. Mila Tanya did not learn Arba'isa. Hashirim v'hanizamim v'tabais. These three different types of um, of uh, decorations of um, of jewelry ornaments that women would wear. You know, rings and jewelry, rings, earrings, and and nose rings. Right. The halachas we're going to learn. I think it's in the next parak. Maybe no, it's, I think it's in, it's in three parakim actually. That uh, women are not permitted to go outside on Shabbos wearing certain types of jewelry because they might take it off to show their friend, and they might take it off to show their friend, and they might even take it even. We go so far as to say, not just in a case where they're walking in a place where there's no Erev, but even if they're walking in a place where there is an Erev, there's a concern that perhaps they'll leave the area where there's an Erev, go to an area where there's no Erev. I mean, they go to the area where there's no Erev, they might come across a friend, and their friend will say, oh, what's your new piece of jewelry? And they'll take off their jewelry, and they'll give it to their friend to hold, and then they'll walk a couple of Amas, and there'll be a problem of walking in Rishas and holding onto an item. So you're not permitted to wear certain types of ornaments in areas, even in areas that actually have an Erev, because you might come to walk out of the Erev. Now, Allah is like this, though. Even though you're not permitted to wear them in that area, they're still considered to be a vessel. And since they're considered to be a vessel, if you're in a chatzar, if you're in a courtyard where you, you are in a surrounded area and you don't need an Erev, you are permitted to move them. They don't become mukta, right? In other words, you might think to say, well, if they have no purpose on Shabbos because you can't wear them, maybe they become mukta. The answer is, even though it's forbidden to walk out with them to the public domain, right, you're still they're still considered to be a vessel. And since they're considered to be a vessel in this region, it's, you're permitted to move them even though it's not in the, you're permitted to move them even though it's in an atypical way of moving them. Amr Ula, Ula says, Matam, what's the reason? Since it still has the definition of a cleat about it, definition of vessel about it. It's not considered to be set aside from any use on Shabbos, right? And that's really just coming to, as a proof to Rabbi Avia's statement that the, the shoes, or not the shoes, but the nafta, the lamp that was used for nafta, still has a possible use, and it has a definition of vessel about it. Since it has a definition of vessel, it's more on your mind, and it is more mukhan, it is more prepared for use on Shabbos, than something that never had the definition of vessel about it. And the proof to this is that we see that women's jewelry is permitted to be moved. It's not permitted to be worn, because you might go out with it on Shabbos, but it's permitted to be moved. It's not mukta. Says, blessed is the merciful one, blessed is Hashem, who caused that Rabbah did not embarrass Reb Avia. Rabbi comes to ask a question to Rabbah. Tanya, we learned in the The leftover oil in a the lamp, the leftover oil that's in a bowl, is forbidden to use on Shabbos. Reb Shimon Mater, however, Reb Shimon permits us to use this on Shabbos. Allah, We see that Reb Shimon does not hold the Muktzah, right? So we're heading back into the deep end, right? To figure out exactly what Reb Shimon's position is on Muktzah. So, so far what we've said is that the oil that's left over is not Muktzah. Reb Shimon will ask a question. Any Bechar, we're talking right now about a firstborn um, animal. Firstborn animal has to be given to the Kayin, right? Now, let's say the firstborn animal has a blemish, right? So if it has a blemish, then you don't have to give that animal to the Kayin. But it has this blemish, right? But it did not have the blemish before Yom Tif started then we do not consider it an animal 
that is muhan is prepared for shechita on Yom Tif, and you're not permitted to shechita on Yom Tif, right? So uh, over there we say that Shimon agrees that you're not permitted to shechita this animal because it did not have a mum before Yom Tif. Now it developed the mum on Yom Tif, and once it developed the mum on Yom Tif, at that point it was now chazi, it was now able to be used for a permissible purpose on Yom Tif. And still Rabbi Shimon said, you're not permitted to use it because it did not have the moon before Yom Tif. Now if Rabbi Shimon indeed holds that there's no such thing as mukta unless it's uh, what we said earlier, either hukta mitzvah, so set aside for mitzvah, or dachibayadayim, pushed away with your hand. Over here, it's not pushed away with your hand. And still Rabbi Shimon says, you're not permitted to use it on Yom Tif. It's not considered to be something that was prepared. Over there, it's different. When it comes to the oil that's left over in your candle, you're thinking to yourself, I know there's going to be some oil left over in the candle. And typically on a Friday night, about 10, 11 o'clock at night, the oil, the, the lamp goes out. And at that point, we indeed take that leftover oil and use it. So you're thinking to yourself, from before Shabbos, I know it's going to be left over. Over here, is it possible to say that people are waiting for a mum to fall into their bachar? That's not true. You, first of all, who said there's even going to be a mum ever? And even if there would be a mum, who says it's going to be a mum that is a fixed mum? In other words, a fixed blemish is going to make this animal permitted to be eaten. A not fixed blemish, one that's going to pass, is not going to be permitted to be eaten. And even if they say it will have a fixed mum in it, who's to say that you're going to actually have a chacham, a wise person, come to your house and give the psak and give the halachic ruling that this is the type of mum which permits you to eat this animal? Maybe you won't have a Maybe you won't have a chacham, you won't have a, a wise person who knows the halacha who will be able to come to your house to give ripsah. Right? So, so, what we, so just, to, to, just to explain what we just the, defined as why this is still a problem according to Rav Shimon. Because it is so far-fetched, the steps that would have to happen for it to be a case where you would actually get a use out of it on Shabbos, on Yom Tif, if you do not have intent beforehand, right? So it actually, once again, Rashi makes it sound like, once again, it's going to fall into the category of so far-fetched that it reaches the bar of as if it's actually been set aside to not be used on Shabbos. The fact that it's so far out of, out of thought and out of, out of your mind that you might ever come to use it, it reaches the same level as if it was as if it was actually pushed away. And that's where Shimon would agree that it's not, it is mukta on Yom Tif, even if a mum actually happens. New question. A new question on this position of Rav Shimon, if, if this really is Rav Shimon's position. You are permitted to... So there's two different ways that a, a woman, at least, can have her nadarim, her oaths, go away. So if a woman made a vow and her husband finds out about that vow, he could be made for it. He could say that, I, I, I do not want you making this vow. It, exactly what those cases are, we'll get up to when we get up to Nadarm. But there are certain types of vows that the husband could just say, I immediately nullify. And there's another type of getting rid of a vow. And that other type of getting rid of a vow is when you made a vow and you go to a chacham, you go to a, a Torah scholar and he convenes a bezdin of two other people. And you say to them, had I known a specific reality, I never would have taken that vow in the first place. And that's called she'elas chacham. And that's called hataras nadarim, right? Making a nether, making a vow become permitted. Not mefirin, not nullifying it, but making it become permitted. Finding a, um, a loophole, not a loophole really, but finding a reason why you wouldn't have made it in the first place. And then saying this vow is no longer extant because you wouldn't have made it in the first place. Okay. Now, halacha is you're allowed to be mefer on Shabbos. Your husband's allowed to say it should go away. And you're even allowed to go ask a chacham, take care of this vow. Only, however, if it is l'tzayruch Shabbos. If the reason why you're convening is because it's for the sake of Shabbos. The Gemara first sets up a question from the beginning of this of this Mishnah. Why are you permitted for the husband to do this? 
What do you mean? How is the woman supposed to say? The question is like this. So the woman take, took a vow before Shabbos. She's not planning on eating chocolate cake. She takes a vow, no more eating chocolate cake. Her husband finds out about it. And he says, that will be detrimental to our shalom bias, to, to the health of our marriage. And therefore, I, I forbid you to take that vow. I'm not sure how that's going to work out in the long run. But that's, that's what he does, right? Now, that's something which now becomes permitted for her to eat chocolate cake on Shabbos. Now, technically, chocolate cake should be mukta for her on Shabbos. It should be set aside from her ever being able to eat it. Because it's forbidden for her to eat it on Shabbos when Shabbos began. Right? So why is it permitted for, why in that case is it permitted for the husband to nullify it and then the food becomes permitted to her on Shabbos? It shouldn't become permitted to her on Shabbos because it should be mukta. When Shabbos began, she had no intention of ever eating that food. It was forbidden for her to eat that food on Shabbos. So who's to say that she'll actually, that she knew that her husband was going to come and be made for her nether and was going to throw it away. So essentially what the Gemara is saying is, when you said that when it came to a when it came to a bachar, a firstborn animal getting a blemish, you said that, well, there's so many different um, levels that have to, hoops that we have to jump through in order for that, uh, for that animal to become permitted. Even if it does have a bachar on Shabbos, you still have to find a chacham who's going to say that it is a, a mum kavua. And the fact that just finding a chacham is so far-fetched, that itself was already enough to say that it is pushed out of your mind. Now what we're saying is she doesn't have the same attitude when it comes to a woman saying that I know my husband's going to nullify my vow. She didn't know her husband was going to nullify her vow before Shabbos. And still it becomes permitted for her to eat it on Shabbos. That should be the same hoop. So why was, is it that when it comes to her husband, we say that that's sufficient and the food becomes permitted, even though she didn't know her husband was going to nullify it. And when it comes to Bukhar, we say that the fact that you're going to have to find the Chacham, a wise person, a Torah scholar, to say that this is indeed the type of mum, the type of blemish that makes it permitted, we say that that's too far away, and therefore it's considered Mokta. What's the difference? This is really because of the, the statement that Pinchas said in the name of Rabba. Basically, the Gemara in Adarim discusses why is it that a husband is always permitted to, to nullify his wife's vows. And the Gemara says that basically women always make a vow if it's something that's in relation between them and their husband. When they make their vow, they're always thinking to themselves, I'm making this vow on condition that my husband is actually inclined to have this vow take place or to, or to solidify this vow, to be Mekayim, to fulfill this vow. So since she actually had that in mind from the beginning, it really was already on her mind. Next time she sees her husband, whether it's on Shabbos, whether it's during the week, and she mentions her vow, he will either say yes or no. And if he says no, the vow is going to go away. So this is not a situation where it's so far-fetched that they'll find the Chacham to come rule if the blemish is a permanent blemish or not. This is a very likely situation. The, the woman made it from the, initially knowing that her husband might make it, might, uh, might nullify it. Tashima, now we ask him the second part of that, that Mishnah. You're permitted to ask a Chacham for Hataras Nadarim to take your nether and to take your oath and, and, um, and take it away and annul it through, through figuring out that you wouldn't have made the oath had you known specific circumstances would change. Now, you're permitted to do that. Why are you permitted to do that? It's still not going to be Tzerach Shabbos. It's not going to be something that you actually need on Shabbos. Because since it was forbidden to you when Shabbos began, how could you say that it becomes permitted to you later on Shabbos. It's not called Tzerach Shabbos. Tzerach Shabbos means that you're going to have the ability to get a benefit from it on Shabbos. You're not going to have the ability to get a benefit from it on Shabbos because it became mukta before Shabbos. Not before Shabbos. It became mukta when Shabbos began. How did you possibly know that you were going to be able to find a Chacham, to find a wise person who would help you annul your vow? The same way, if you're able to find a Chacham, the fact that you might find a Chacham to help you annul your vow is very likely, Right? then that should also be true when it comes to finding a Chacham to help figure out if this blemish is a permanent blemish or not. So we can't say earlier, well, 
When it comes to finding a chacham to figure out if it's a permanent blemish, that's so far fetched that Rashim is going to say that it's still muktza. But when it comes to finding a chacham to annul the vow, right, then it's not so far fetched. And indeed, Rav Shimon is not going, it will, will allow the thing to become mutter on Shabbos because it's not far fetched to find the chacham. Well, which is it? Is it far fetched to find the chacham or is it not far fetched to find the chacham? Technically, it's true. Ideally, one should always find a chacham, a Torah scholar, to be sitting on their, this uh, ad hoc bezdin, ad hoc court, to decide that this vow is not a, was not a valid vow. Because had you known the set of circumstances would change, you wouldn't have made the vow. But if you didn't find the tamal chacham, indeed, it would be enough to actually find three hadiatists, to find three laymen can actually also nullify your vow. So that's why over there, it's not far-fetched that you'll be able to nullify the vow on Shabbos, and it's not as far-fetched as finding a Talmud Chacham, a wise person, to determine whether or not this animal is, um, this animal has a blemish on Shabbos. Okay. Is it true that Rav Shimon says that if the candle has gone out, then you're permitted to, to, uh, to carry it? Is it true that he holds that only once the candle has gone out, you're not permitted to carry it around? But if the candle is still lit, you're not permitted to carry it? My timer, why aren't you permitted to carry it even if the candle is still lit? Maybe the concern is that while you're carrying the candle around, if you're moving it, the wind will blow and it'll cause the candle to go out. So maybe why does Rav Shimon say you're not permitted to move a, a lamp while the, the lamp is still lit? Out of a concern that perhaps you're going to cause the lamp to go out. Problem is, Rav Shimon, according to his other sack, according to the, the ruling that we've been talking about a lot, which is that if it's something that you don't have intent to do, it's, it's okay. So, we know that Rav Shimon holds something that you don't have intent to do is actually permitted to do. Now, if you're moving the, camp, the, the, the lamp, you're not moving the lamp for the sake of blowing out the lamp. So, why does Rav Shimon say you're not permitted to move a lamp on Shabbos while it's still lit? You should be permitted to move it even when it's lit. The concern is it might go out. Okay, well, if it goes out, that wasn't your intention. And that would be a Dabr Shemus and something you do not have intention to do. And therefore, it's permitted according to Rav Shimon. The Tanya we learned in Rav Shimon. So he said that Shimon holds earlier, we mentioned this before, in Abraham. So Shimon says that you're allowed to drag a chair, you're allowed to drag a bed, you're allowed to drag a couch on Shabbos, even if it's in dirt, as long as you don't have intention to make a, uh, you know, make a furrow in the ground, to plow the ground, so to speak. Right? Plowing the ground in its typical fashion would be a real malacha daraisa. Now over here he says you're allowed to do it as long as you don't have intention to do it. Any time where if you had in mind to do it, then it would be a malacha daraisa. And even when you don't have in mind to do it, Rav Shimon's going to say you're not allowed to do it on a rabbinic level. So what does this mean exactly? This means like this. When it comes to a candle, if you would actually blow the candle out with the intention of blowing the candle out, that would be a regular malacha daraisa. That would be forbidden to do on a Torah level. When it comes to dragging the, dragging the, the bench in the ground, you might make a, a furrow in the ground, but that's not your intention to make a furrow in the ground. And moreover, even if you had intent to make a furrow in the ground, if you made the furrow using a bench or a, or a bed or a, um, or a chair, that would, that would not be the malacha of plowing the rice. It would not be the malacha of chorish of plowing the rice. Why not? Because to plow the rice, it would have to be your typical way to use a plow, to use a shovel, to use a spade. But over here, you're not doing that. Over here, you would be plowing using a, a, a vessel that's not made for that. And this would then fall into the category of what we call a shinoi um, in the way that's being done. To be a malacha daraisa, to be a, a forbidden labor on a Torah level, it has to be in the typical way of doing this malacha. It's atypical to plow the ground using a chair. And therefore, and therefore, like this, 
When did Rav Shimon say that you're forbidden to do a malacha on Shabbos? You're forbidden to carry something on Shabbos because you might come to do a malacha daraisa. He only said that when the malacha that might end up occurring, the consequence that might end up occurring, if you did that specific act with intent to do that act, that would be a prohibition on a daraisa level. So to carry a lamp, the lamp, the, the candle might go out. If you had intent to blow out the candle, that would be a malacha daraisa. To carry the bench on the ground, well, you don't have intent to make a furrow in the ground. And even if you did have intent to make a furrow in the ground, since you're using an atypical way of making a furrow in the ground, it would only be malachad rabbanon. So Rav Shimon never made an enactment against that case in the first place. We know that the Allah is like this. People who are selling clothing, they're allowed to sell it in a typical way. A typical way is they would actually put the clothing on and walk around as a peddler and say, here, who wants to buy this jacket? Who wants to buy this cloak? Now, the concern is that it might have shatness in it, right? Now, they said the halacha is that they're permitted to wear it and, and put it on their clothes, put it on as long as they're in, they don't have intention to actually get benefit from wearing the clothing. As long as they don't have intention during the the sunny season to protect themselves from the sun, and during the rainy season to protect themselves from the rain. But people who are very careful with mitzvahs, the medactic mitzvahs, they would actually put it onto a stick and hold it behind their backs. Why would they do that? Because they didn't want to wear it. But over here, what do we see? That they are permitted, ideally, one is permitted to actually wear it, as long as they don't have intention to get the benefit from it. Now, what's the case over here? If they would wear it, Right, and they would intend to get the benefit from it. It would be a kliyim issue. It would be a real shatnas issue. Over here, if they would intend to wear it in the way to get the benefit from it, it would be a regular malacha daraisa. And still, Rav Shimon says it's permitted to wear it in this way because you don't have intention to get the benefit from it, and still permitted to wear it in this way, even though if you would wear it with the intention to get benefit, it would be malacha daraisa. So this is not true. Abaya's whole reason was: Why are you permitted to? To move, to not move the lamp, because if you actually intended to blow out the lamp, it'd be malacha daraisa. And there, Rav Shimon agrees. That's not true. Rav Shimon says all dabar she'in is mutter. Anytime you do an action and you do not intend for a second consequence, it's permitted to do that action. And even if that second consequence, if it would be done standalone with the intention of that action, it would still be daraisa. Rav Shimon still says it's mutter. How do we know that? It's in the case of klayim, a case of wearing garments made out of wool and linen. There, Rav Shimon says, indeed, you're permitted to wear these garments as long as you don't have intent. To get benefit from them, right? And even though over there, if you did have intent, it would be Malacha Daraisa. Rav has a very compelling uh, throwing away of Abaya's answer. So Rav says, I'll tell you why Rav Shimon says you're not permitted to move the lamp on Shabbos. He says, he says, we're going to put aside the, basically, the Shemin, the oil, the, the lamp, and the wick. Why? Because they become a Basis Ladavara Aser. They all become a base for something that is forbidden. What does that mean? So Rashi explains, what is this referring to? Rashi says, we're talking about the Shalhevis. The flame on the candle cannot be touched. The flame itself cannot be touched or moved. Now, it's a little bit of a ephemeral type of thing. You can't actually do it. What it means is if you would touch it or move it, it would automatically go out. Since you cannot touch it or move it at all, and the, the flame itself is completely forbidden to be touched, so therefore, therefore, you're not permitted to move the other things underneath it either. The other things underneath it are also then become a basis. They become what we call something that is a base for something which is muktza. Something which becomes a base for something which is muktza becomes forbidden to be used the entire Shabbos. So right now what we're saying is the reason why, according to Rav Shimon, it is forbidden to move the candle while it's lit is not because you might the candle might go out. That's not an issue. The reason is because when the when the when the candle is lit, the candle itself becomes a base for the actual 
for the actual flame. And the flame is really mukta, even according to Shimon. Since the flame is, since the candle is, is buckle, is, uh, is nullified or, or is, the, is not the main thing over here, and, the, and the, the candle is not the main thing, the flame is the main thing, the candle becomes the, the basis, it becomes the, the place, the seat for the actual flame. And therefore, it becomes forbidden to move it the entire time that it's actually lit. Once it's no longer lit, then it becomes permitted because Rav Shimon does not hold of migu diskatsai, the banish mushes. The fact that it was set aside the entire banish mushes, it becomes migu diskatsai, the kule shabbos, it becomes mukta for the whole shabbos. If he did hold of that principle, then since the candle was lit the whole banish mushes, then it would be forbidden to use the, the candle the rest of shabbos too because the candle already became a basis, it already became a base for a forbidden item the entire shabbos. It once banish mushes ruled around, then it was based during Banish Mashas. But according to Shimon, that's not true. Even if it was based on Banish Mashas, it does not become forbidden the entire Shabbos.